From the pinnacle of the media landscape, this is Market Edge. Join your host, Larry Weber, as he discovers the answers from analysts, entrepreneurs, and technologists who are preparing the blueprints for the future of marketing. Hear from those who are taking us to a new age of social media, e-communities, and the blogosphere. blogosphere. Now, please welcome your host of Market Edge, Larry Weber. Hi, and welcome to Market Edge. I'm your host, Larry Weber, chairman of W2 Group, a global marketing services ecosystem organized to help CMOs in their new role as builders of communities and content aggregators. I'm very excited today to have one of the foremost journalists uh, working today with us. Um, um, we're going to be talking about the future of publishing and the web with Jason Ponton. He's editor-in-chief and publisher of Technology Review. Technology Review is an independent media company owned by MIT and is the oldest technology magazine in the world. It was established in 1899. The publication promotes understanding of emerging technologies and analyzes their commercial, social, and political impacts. Before becoming publisher of Technology Review in 2005, Jason was editor of the technology business magazine Red Herring. He writes for many national and international publications, including Slipstream, a regular column about new ideas and technology for the New York Times on Sunday. The Economist, The Financial Times, Wired, and The Believer. He's a frequent guest on TV and radio, including ABC News, CNN, and NPR. Jason, welcome to Market Edge. It's a pleasure to be here, Larry. Hey, Jason, before we get into, you know, uh, sort of the, the meat of the future of, of publishing and, and, and what's happening, just tell our, our audience who doesn't follow Technology Review sort of the, uh, the core mission of, the, of the, the magazine and also what you're doing uh, with a traditional magazine as the world looks more and more to the web. I'd, I'd love to. The mission of Technology Review is largely as you described it, Larry. We identify emerging technologies for an audience of senior executives, researchers, and early adopters, and we explain why they might matter. We analyze their, their impacts, and the impacts we're largely interested in are economic, our social, and political impacts. But we've been doing that for a very long time. As you said, we're the oldest technology magazine in the world. When I was made publisher in 2005, after a year as just being the editor-in-chief, I decided that MIT had a fairly large appetite for innovation and some appetite for a little bit of risk. And we decided if we could be as innovative in our publishing venture as we had as we were in our journalism and as the companies we wrote about uh, traditionally had been. So we had been a fairly conventional uh, monthly magazine, publishing 12 times a year, um, with a web presence that by and large simply reproduced uh, magazine content online. And for the last three years, I've been working to transform this um, high-quality but fairly venerable and traditional publishing company into a largely electronic media venture. Today, we publish between three to seven stories every day on our website. The stories are news analysis. We have videos. We have fairly conventional online things like 
podcasts. We also do some very unusual things. Every single story on Technology Review is read out, if the reader chooses to hear it that way, um, by a speech bot, by a small piece of software. And you can hear that on your, on your iPod, on your laptop, however you choose to download it. So if your audience hasn't seen Technology Review in the last couple of years, I, I urge them to come and check us out. We're doing some fun things over here. Do you see a, a day um, that there is no print version of Technology Review? Um, or do you think, we'll, like other publications, we'll always have some kind of physical uh, representation of our journalistic, journalistic pursuits? I get asked that question all the time, and I think the best answer as I can give is that one day um, print will be isolated in publishing to very high-end products where there is some value to being, to being atavistic, to being anachronistic. So I can imagine a world where in the future, Rob Report uh, the McKinsey Quarterly luxury products are the only ones that are traditionally printed. That said, I think for my career, that is for the next 10, 15, 20 years, we're likely to see some print component to most publishing companies. I think it's going to be smaller um, than the online component, but I think there is value for both readers and for advertisers in maintaining a an organic circulation in print that delivers an extremely high-quality audience to media buyers and advertisers. And for me, an organic circulation means uh, renewals of around 75%. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with you on that. The, you know, you, you write for arguably uh, one of the uh, most influential newspapers uh, in the world, the New York Times, uh, and especially it's most widely read, the New York Sunday Times. Though, you know, we're living in a time where, and I know you've probably heard these statistics before, that, you know, every year for 13, 14 years, newspaper circulations have decreased. Um, I don't believe there's any newspaper over 2 million in paid circulation anymore. Yet there's over 50 blogs that have over 2 million in participation Tell us a little bit about the changing media landscape, both from the traditional to the new, and please include a little, Jason, the idea of influence, you know, the, the idea of impact that, you know, the, the, the big names like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times have, and, and upcoming media like Boing Boing, even though it has a regrettable name. <laughs> it's a terrible name. Um, all those uh, aggregator sites have slightly uh, shy-making, embarrassing names, slash dot boing boing dig. <laughs> so let me ask you, answer your question. So when I was talking about the permanence of print, um, I believe that permanence will mainly exist for magazines. For newspapers, where the, um, the value is more ephemeral, I think there is probably... It's for a much more limited time that people will continue to want to receive their, uh, their news in a printed format. Uh, the figures you are citing are even, more, are even more dramatic if you begin to look at demographics, particularly age demographics and wealth demographics. People who are under the age of 30 
um, very seldom receive their news in print, and people who receive more than $120,000 a year uh, in household income are also much less likely to consume their news in print. Um, so newspapers are in um, decline both in terms of their audience, but also their advertising base, which supported their, their huge news stars, is also under assault. Most newspapers receive their advertising from local advertising markets, even if they were national newspapers like the New York Times. They received from classified job markets. All that advertising has gone online. So I think newspapers are in much worse trouble. In my own hometown of Boston, my wife is one of the assistant editors at the Boston Globe. The Boston Globe, which is a, had been a fine national paper under the relentless pressure of uh, declining audience and declining advertising, has had to year by year scale back its uh, operations. I think there is a way out of this for newspapers. Um, I think they need to get into the job of uh, providing news and specifically highly branded news analysis um, that provides additional value to what you can get from blogs or from uh, news feeds uh, or from wire services on a daily basis. And I think they'll be delivering that content online. I think people will be willing to go and pay um, maybe small subscription fees for uh, premium products from such news analysis sources. And I think you can wrap advertising around such highly valued news. Um, I think such news analysis wouldn't compete but would be complementary uh, with other high influencers such as the power bloggers. Uh, you mentioned these power bloggers like Andrew Sullivan who have more than 2 million views. But I think that the media market where you could... Uh, where newspapers could count upon a national audience in the, you know, of nearly 10 million, and then they would then sell that audience into local advertisers uh, for specific media markets. That's, that's done, and that's going to be over within, within this decade. Yeah. The, um, you know, it's, it's fascinating to watch my, my teenagers who have never picked up a newspaper. Um, mm -hmm. And we, even when we go to the airport, the only magazine they want to get is People magazine, you know, something, <laughs> something but, with but that's gossip. That's interesting, Larry, isn't it? So when people talk about the death of magazines, there are two things that people still want to, um, still want to read in, in the paper form factor. Um, people like to read things where the image, where the image is extremely important. So women's magazines uh, providing um, uh, gossip or fashion, that's still you know, highly desirable. The circulations of publications like W Magazine and L and Vogue are doing fine, as are Us Weekly. Um, the other thing which people like to read in print, turns out, are longer format investigative stories. Um, because that's something that you want with a screen, the computer screen, either on a laptop or on a Kindle um, or on your um, desktop. It's not the ideal format to read that. So, again, in magazine publishing, we see that beyond those, the women's magazine categories, thought leader magazines like, uh, like The Economist, like The New Yorker, like The Atlantic, are also doing fairly well. So at, at Technology Review, when we made this decision to go largely electronic, and we thought what function could print serve us, we decided to reduce the circulation of, our, of the frequency, forgive me, 
reduce the frequency of our print mag, uh, magazine to six times a year, and to specialize in the magazine in providing both photo essays and long format stories of between 3,000 to sometimes as much as 8,000 words. And we found that our circulation is doing very well because we're doing what print does well. And as I was saying, I think that will outlast most of the changes that are occurring in newspapers, and that will go on until something called electronic ink, which is a technology invented by MIT. We basically get the form factor of a print magazine on a printed piece of paper, but it changes electronically, as you do with your laptop. Until electronic ink is a viable economic reality, we're still going to have magazines. Yeah. You know, just to, to pick up on a thread there, too, and, and also back to your comment about generational, you know, um, uh, behavior, uh, I'm noticing as well younger people are, are less text-based uh, in their consumption of, uh, of web-based uh, material. It's increasingly rich media, video, um, uh, you know, uh, highly... Um, uh, picture-oriented. Is, is that a trend that's going to continue even more uh, in the future? Yeah. It, I hear what you're saying about it being generational. I think younger people certainly tend to be more enthusiastic about uh, watching video uh, online. But I, I see this move to rich media, to flash, to video, and to podcasts or the text-to-speech function we have on technology review. I see that largely as a phenomenon of um, technology and economics. I think everyone now pretty much has high-speed bandwidth into the home or into the office, um, and I think that storage is nearly free. So for both those reasons, I think it's now possible for media companies to deliver video um, uh, sound and flash very effectively. And the reason why I think that is if you go to somewhere like India, uh, where bandwidth is still not um, very high bandwidth, is still not very widely available, and storage still costs a lot of money, even though the Indian middle class is in fact highly tech-savvy, you see much less um, rich media. So I think all over the world, as the costs of bandwidth come down, um, as the cost of storage comes down, you see publishing companies move into the space. Again, if your audience goes to Technology Review, you, they will see that we promote video as pretty much second to text on our site. There's a large video box on the top hand, right hand of technologyreview.com where we try and deliver a few videos every single week. And, and um, I, I urge the uh, audience to go and check it out because I, I agree. I think there's going to be more and more um, you know, uh, video rich media as as all the costs come down. We're going to uh, just take uh, a short break, uh, and we'll be back with Jason Ponton and Market Edge in just a sec. Market Edge will continue in just a moment. How do you choose the right affiliate network to partner with? The answer is simple. MarketHealth.com, where health and wealth connect. Established in 1998 and formerly known as Joe Bucks, the MarketHealth.com affiliate network allows you to market and promote the world's leading health and beauty offers on the net. Start making recurring income and the highest payouts in our industry. Choose from over 50 of the hottest selling offers, ranging from herbal supplements, skincare, vitamins, beauty products, weight loss, and much more. Sign up for free at MarketHealth.com and start making money today. Can you believe how long it takes to order food here? Uh, here we go. Excuse me. She's not even looking over here. 
Great service is hard to come by, whether you're sitting at a bar, restaurant, or creating effective search advertising campaigns. Um, excuse me. I think we need to go somewhere else. It's easy to feel forgotten, especially when your advertising budget is on the line. LookSmart serves up to 400 million queries a day with a side of the best customer service in the online advertising industry. Hi, how are y'all doing today? What can I get you folks to eat? You were right. This place is so much better. LookSmart, premium and performance advertising solutions. Um, hello? Uh, welcome to our website? Website traffic isn't about paying for clicks. Okay, so I guess we're going to wait until everyone shows up and then we'll... uh, um... It's about having the right content. So while you're searching for more traffic, the folks at InfoSearch Media are creating the content people are searching for. With InfoSearch Media, you can get more traffic for less money than PPC. So the next time you need to speak to your customers... Welcome to our website. They're already searching for you. InfoSearch Media. Get content that really clicks. Okay, so you're telling me that if I put the Go Currency Converter on my site, all my international customers can see how much they're paying in their own currency? Yeah, GoCurrency.com has free currency converters, language translations, international clocks, everything you need to do international business. So how does it work? Conversion elves. Conversion elves? Yeah, watch. Want to know what this will cost in euros? Check this out. Listen up, elves. We got one. $34 US. I need that in euros. Now, people. We got it. Put it up there, elves. Wow. Currency elves. Who knew? GoCurrency.com. Free currency converters, language translations, and more. GoCurrency.com. The whoring of Facebook for promotional purposes continues with the WebmasterRadio.fm Facebook fan page. Join our fans by clicking the Facebook logo on the WebmasterRadio.fm homepage and keep up to date with all the latest. Become a fan on Facebook. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. From the pinnacle of the marketing landscape, we now return to Market Edge. Once again, here's your host, Larry Weber. Welcome back to Market Edge. This is your host, Larry Weber, and I'm here today with Jason Fox, who is editor-in-chief and the publisher of MIT's Technology Review, the oldest uh, technology magazine in the world, dating back to 1899. But he's also a well-known and very respected journalist who uh, regularly uh, writes for the New York Times, The Economist, The Financial Times, and others. Um, Jason... You know, uh, just taking a little side check, give us some of your thoughts, um, uh, you know, on the, this whole social media, uh, you know, trend, fad, whatever you want to call it. Uh, is it here to stay? Are, are people blowing it out of proportion? And how is it going to, you know, impact uh, the future of, of publishing? That is such an interesting question, Larry. So, um Social media is growing so quickly. Um, just to give you some figures, 250,000 people are joining Facebook every day, every single day. Wow. And it's not limited merely to um, the United States. Um, when I travel, as I do all the time, to India uh, and Africa and China, they have their own social networks that additionally have tens of millions of, of users. When MySpace, the first really widely used social network, came online, many people thought that it was merely a phenomenon of teenage mating and socializing behaviors. Um, 
And that's because this was first embraced by teenagers and the, the kinds of applications that were available on MySpace seemed to be ones that mainly appealed to, to teenagers. But since then, social networking has has excited every single category of humanity that is online. I think that's because human beings like to like to communicate. Um, Facebook, uh, the best of the social networks, began again in, began inside colleges, moved then to um, organizations like the U.S. Marines, and it was finally open to the general public, where it's now filled with people of you know your your and my age who use it for many business functions. Um, I think the other reason why social networks are growing so fast is because of the decline in utility of email. For most of us, our email inboxes are simply swamped, both in unsolicited email, in, in spam that we don't want, and email which had been a highly desirable uh, horizontal communication service has become less and less useful. On Facebook, we can communicate with exactly which groups of friends we want to communicate and the way that we want to communicate, and we're in control of it. It's a private network. On Facebook as well, and on some of the newest sites like Pounce, you can uh, trade files in an entirely private way that um, you know, regulators can't manage, like they manage Napster out of existence. So there are clearly really powerful trends pushing the social media phenomenon along. But here's the problem. No one has any idea how to make any money out of it. Mm -hmm. um, so if you go on Facebook right now, you'll see the only advertising they're generating is through highly undemographically specific ads um, in Skybox IMUs down the left-hand side of the screen. The, 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 the specificity seems to be limited to geographical location and, and age. The rumor about how much Facebook is bringing in every year in revenues uh, is about $100 million, much less than its burn at the moment in terms of its cost of running. So though I think that I, in my entire career as a journalist, I've never seen a technology phenomenon grow so quickly. This has all happened in the last 18 months to two, two years. It's not clear what's going to, what's going to drive the business model. So I haven't thought initially advertising, but advertising isn't quite working out yet. Yeah, you know, in a way, you know, when I look at it, I, I look at the Facebook MySpace phenomenon, and I go, in a way, it's it's sort of like mass media. So it's it's it hasn't changed that much. It's just what we've moved, you know, sort of our, our communities have moved online. And I'm wondering, will they not micro-segment some more? You know, like we're already seeing, like, you know, bass fishing in northernidaho.com, and, and that way maybe advertising becomes more acceptable and apparent if things are more segmented like that. Well, that, that's, what I, that's what I was referring to my roundabout way. So Facebook said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to create a product called Beacon. And Beacon was based upon an old idea popular amongst marketing professionals, which is that marketing that is really specific to you isn't resented, but is in fact embraced. And the idea was that no one knew more about your communications practices, your purchasing behavior, and your friends, your socializing behavior, than Facebook itself. And Beacon was going to really micro-segment micro um, the advertising. They launched it, and there was a gigantic outroar uh, from the, the Facebook community because people turned out to feel very proprietorial about what they did on Facebook. 
Facebook was popular because it's very private. You can, people feel they can do whatever they want there. It's not an open uh, social network in the way that MySpace is. And Facebook had to roll back, um, had to roll back Beacon and say they were going to think about it some more. Um, if you look at some of the similar products, like, I guess, Gmail, um, again, where um, Google knows an enormous amount about what you do in its, in its messaging service, again, attempts to target the Gmail community have been really resisted by, by Google users. So I agree with you that the long-term financial success of these networks probably needs to, needs to involve micro-segmenting marketing and advertising. But so far, the user base hasn't liked the idea very much. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what I've, I've told my listeners before. I give my middle daughter uh, $100 uh, last summer to just be my spy on Facebook because I, I didn't want to be a middle-aged guy on Facebook. And, and uh, she came into me and she said, Dad, the lamest thing just happened on Facebook. I said, what's that, Julia? She goes, Coca-Cola wants to be my friend. <laughs> and so, of course, yeah. she and her she and her friends just made continual fun of Coca Cola. So even the brands are lost with this new phenomenon. Yeah, I think I think this is the most, and this is the one of the biggest problems facing marketing professionals, advertisers, and media folks like me. Um, almost, I would say you know most of the online activity of folks under thirty is now occurring in the context of social media. Um, and yet we have no very clear idea how to reach out to them through social media. So it's, it, it's something we're, we're struggling with that technology review. And we have all sorts of little plans we've got in the works. We're going to try them out and see what sticks. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. Hey, you mentioned uh, the big G word. Uh, I, we couldn't let this half hour go by without getting your predictions on Google uh, and uh, their dominance in what they do and uh, where they're headed, and uh, also your opinions, because my circle of friends are, are very dubious about the Yahoo-Microsoft combination, that it's almost, you know, uh, five years too late, and would love your professional opinion, one about Google and its future and its dominant position, and the hopes of Microsoft and, and Yahoo? Let me answer the questions in reverse order. Let me begin with um, the Microsoft-Yahoo proposed merger and then to say what I think about the future of Google. So the first thing to say about the Microsoft-Yahoo merger is that it will happen. Um, no matter how little Jerry Yang, the founder and presently the interim CEO of Yahoo, wishes it to happen, uh, he has a fiduciary responsibility as the uh, head of a public company to accept um, a reasonable valuation uh, for his shareholders, and the board will force him to do it. The only hiccup, I imagine, will be that Google will somewhat comically say that this represents a, mon a monopolistic threat to innovation and will try and hold up the, uh, the merger through um, American antitrust law. But it, it will happen sometime either by the end of this year or the next. But it is, as you say, Larry, far too late. Um, if you combine the, the advertising revenues of Microsoft Network and Yahoo Online, you would think you would have something which competes with Google. Unfortunately, though the total is competitive, 
both are in decline in terms of the rate of growth compared to Google. Google is becoming the de facto platform for both advertising and um, search online. And it would have to, there would have to be something very startling to, to interrupt that. Which brings me to the um, transition to Google. I have enormous respect for Google as a company. Clearly, it's providing great value to readers in the form of relevancy. And it also is providing true value to advertisers in the form of a return on their investment that is measurable. That said, outside those two areas of value creation, Google creates nothing. Google does nothing. Google is a gigantic parasite um, which lives and breathes and prospers because people like me are in the business of creating extremely expensive uh, media that they direct their readers to um, and which their advertisers uh, wish to have those readers directed to. If Google can't find a way to work with publishers like myself and with media buyers so that we enjoy some of the fruits of the search revolution, then Google itself is in trouble in the long run. Uh, because at the moment, the, the, the CPM and the, uh, the cost per clicks that I can receive through the Google ad networks, Google Sense and Google AdWords, are a fraction of the um, CPMs which I used to enjoy in print, which we still enjoy through display advertising online. So Google has to begin thinking about the larger media economy if it wishes to prosper. It had some ideas in the space. It had a product called Google Premium that was meant to uh, give some value back to publishers like me, but it never took off. And uh, in the long term, I'm worried about both the health of the publishing industry as well as the health of Google um, because at the moment they've placed themselves as a middleman deriving most of the benefits from the search revolution. Yeah, and, you know, I hear the same things from, uh, you know, the senior executives like Peter Chernin at News Corp. And, you know, it, it's it's a hard thing to judge because they, they say, you know, Google's choking us on one, one, one side, but we need them desperately on the other side. Yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting phenomenon. Publishers who ra- rail against this too much I'm a little bit suspicious of. Uh, because it's railing against reality, and there's nothing more feckless and foolish and perhaps insane than than to wish that reality were other than it is. So this is the reality of modern publishing. Google is the is the middleman and takes a vig on all advertising transactions and on all search transactions. Uh, having said that, um, what they offer back to publishers like me is so is so minuscule to, compared to the cost of producing high-quality editorial that I, I fear for our long-term ability to continue to serve the editorial that we do. So this is something that, 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 that will need to be fixed. I, I'm confident that it will be in the long term because people like to read, and right. you know, Google knows that, um, and advertisers want our audience. But at the moment, what the solution is isn't clear at all. Well, you know, um, I agree with you. So, the you know it, our time is coming to an end. But I always ask the last question I ask my guests uh, is, a, is a very simple one. 
Could you share with our audience some of the more interesting sites you've in, encountered l lately that have uh, caught your fancy and, and, and you enjoy and that maybe other people haven't quite uh, found yet? And second, any, any books that uh, uh, you might be reading at the time that, that you think are, are worth clicking on uh, on the Amazon site? <laughs> I'd love to. So let me give you a really cool new social network called Pounce. Pounce was developed by Kevin Rose, the founder of the most important uh, news aggregation site, Dig. And Pounce combines many of the best features of the microblogging service Twitter with some of the functions of Facebook and with the file sharing uh, abilities of um, Napster and BitTorrent. And for media professionals, therefore, Larry, it's a really potentially frightening product because it's a totally private network and no one knows what intellectual property is being transferred inside Pounce. Napster was open. People could see what was happening. Right. But what happens inside Pounce is uh, only is known, even Kevin Rose doesn't know. It's an entirely anonymous messaging system. So I think Pounce is something well worth checking out. The book I'm reading at the moment is called The Lever of Riches by uh, Jay Moskaya, that's M-O-S-K-Y-R, and it's about how technological innovation has been the principal driver of uh, economic growth since the, um, the scientific revolution in England in the 16th century. And it has a wonderful series of examples from the cotton gin to the invention of the personal computer. And I'm enjoying it a great deal. Jason Ponton, one of our foremost uh, journalists uh, in the world, uh, editor and publisher of Technology Review, MIT's uh, magazine of technology, and frequent uh, contributor to the New York Times, Economist, Financial Times, and others. Um, you were special to be with us today. Thanks so much, Jason. Hey, thank you. That was fun. And thanks, everybody in the audience, for listening to today's Market Edge conversation. Tune in again next Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time at webmasterradio.fm for another Market Edge. Bye-bye. <laughs>